Father, this morning, um, we pause for just a minute to recognize and remember that you are with us. Um, And we ask, God, that you would speak to our minds and hearts through your word this morning. Uh, we, We open ourselves up and we open our hearts and our minds and our hands and we say, God, have your way with us today and teach us and challenge us and change us in whatever way you need to so that we can be more the people that you long for us to be in this world. That is our heart. That is what we long for. And we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, when I was a kid, uh, we would often take trips, family trips, to my aunt's house who lived in West Palm Beach, Florida. Not a bad place to go on family vacation, especially in the winter from the Midwest. And we had all sorts of fun down at my aunt's place. Uh, My mom and dad grew up in Miami, so it was kind of home, or at least close to home for them. But one of the, the special memories for me when we would go down there was that when we were down there in the summertime, often at night we would walk the beaches in search of sea turtles who had come ashore to lay their eggs it was just this really neat kind of thing that happens. Maybe you've seen it on a National Geographic special or on one of those BBC shows on Netflix. But these giant sea turtles will come ashore, mostly at night, um, and they, the females crawl up the beach into the dry sand, and then with their hind flippers, they will dig a huge hole, and then they lay about 100 eggs each before covering the eggs back again with sand and then kind of crawling back into the ocean. And while they're kind of in this entire process, these, these female turtles are in a trance. They're just so focused they can block out anything. You women maybe can relate to this moment. Anyway, nothing can phase them. And so you can be like right around them with flashlights watching this whole process. It doesn't phase them at all. And so we would find these turtles doing this. And it was just this really cool thing. Well, then two months later, the baby sea turtles hatch. And they hatch all at once. It's this really cool thing. They all hatch at once. They kind of crawl out through the hole, up through the sand, and then head off into the deep, uh, big blue ocean. There's a picture of the cute little sea turtles heading off into the waves. And then that sound great. Doesn't that look so amazingly cute and wonderful? Well, I'm going to ruin it for you. Here's the harsh truth. Less than one out of every 100 of those little sea turtles will make it in the big bad world of the ocean. Less than 1% will make it to adulthood. Because the ocean is a big place. It's tough and it's hard. It's difficult. And there are casualties. And I bring this up this morning because today we are talking about what it looks like to face this hard, difficult, fallen, sinful world that we live in and survive spiritually. Today we're talking about what it looks like not to be on the casualty list of this sinful, fallen world. And the odds are really stacked against us in the same way that they're stacked against the sea turtles in that picture. And so today we're going to talk about how to overcome, how to succeed, how to beat the odds. And we're going to do that by looking at a story in the Old Testament. It's the story of a guy who faced kind of an ocean of his own. Today we're going to be looking at the story of Daniel. We're going to be in the book of Daniel. So if you brought your Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of Daniel. If you're using a pew Bible, you can grab one out. And uh, Daniel is like right in the middle. If you open the Bible dead center, you go right 
towards Daniel, past Jeremiah and Lamentations and Ezekiel. And if you hit Hosea and Joel and Amos and Obadiah, you've gone too far. Daniel is where we'll be. Last week, Pastor Carl talked about Joshua. And I hadn't decided yet what I was preaching on this morning. And so I, as he was talking about Joshua, I thought, well, I'm going to talk about one of my favorite Old Testament characters. And it's this guy, Daniel. An entire book in the Old Testament is devoted to his story. And we're going to tackle just the very beginning of it today. We're going to begin where Daniel begins in chapter 1, verse 1. Here's how the story starts. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. I want you to know that right out of the gates, this is just like a Star Wars movie, right? This is like we've started with the empire. The first order is on the move, and you can hear the song in the background, right? Like, dun, 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 dun. There's no doubt that these are the bad guys. This story takes place during a very dark time in human history. It's actually 600 BC, 600 years before Jesus, and the Babylonian Empire has now been expanding its reign by conquering one nation at a time. And finally, after years of successful resistance, the kingdom of Judah has now, in this moment, been taken, been absorbed by the great Babylonian Empire. And this morning, as you look at that map, that's the Babylonian Empire in 600 BC. That's exactly what it looks like. As you can see, the nation of Israel right there by the Jordan River, kind of on the, the, uh, the, what, the eastern shore of the Great Sea. Um, it's been swallowed up by Babylon. And today we're going to talk about Babylon. And that maybe seem kind of strange that the subject for a Sunday morning message is a foreign, massive, sort of imposing empire. But I want to talk about Babylon today, and here's why. Babylon is the challenge. Babylon is the struggle. Babylon is the great difficulty that Daniel is going to have to face throughout this story. It is a very sad, sad thing. Sound effects offered as well. Um, <laughs> But this story, friends, I'll argue, is not just about Daniel. It's not just about this empire. I think this story, as are all the stories in the scriptures, this story is about you and me. This is actually a story about us. This story is about every single person who tries to live a God-devoted life in this fallen, broken, sin-filled world. See, Babylon is not just a reality for Daniel. Every single one of us will face Babylons in our lives. And so today we're going to learn from Daniel what Babylon is and how to face it. And I want to offer you three things, three things that really define Babylon in this story. And the first one jumps right out at us from the very beginning, and it's this. Babylon is the death of of a dream. Again, this is Daniel chapter 1, starting again in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Dun, 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 dun. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house 
of his God. Friends, there is a whole lot of heartbreak embedded into these first two verses because this is what they tell us. The dream that was God's people seems to be over. The promised land, the community that would bless the world, it had now been conquered, captured, and destroyed. And friends, if you remember, this was not a dream that had come easily. These were people that were at one time slaves in Egypt. They had been delivered by God through Moses. It was miraculous. Through the Dead Sea. They had wandered through the the wilderness for 40 years. They had finally mustered up enough faith to trust God and cross the Jordan River and take the promised land and defeat the giants. And they had finally become a people. They had finally found a home. They had finally established themselves in this world. God's dream was moving forward. And now, in this moment, in these verses, we discover that Nebuchadnezzar comes and with very little effort, destroys all that is left of the dream. He just shatters it. Israel is gone. The temple, just a memory. Daniel would come to adulthood and spend his life in a foreign land. He would give his service to a foreign king. He would have to speak a foreign language. He lost his culture, his family. He would live and die in a place that he never wanted to be, and he would never go home. The dream that was Israel, the dream that was Daniel's life, has been shattered. Ever lost or felt like you were losing a dream in your life? Ever have hopes, ambitions, plans, expectations, this vision for who you were going to be or what, were you going, what you were going to experience or how life was going to play out and ever have it just come crashing down? The summer before my senior year in college, I was out at a work trip. The company that I worked for in the summer had this little like lake day and um, they had brought a few jet skis, and I, I was kind of family friends with the boss, which is kind of how I landed this job. It was totally a who do you know, not what you know moment. But um, I had his son. Um, they were family friends, and his son was a younger kid, and he kind of looked up to me, and I was spending some time with him. And when I was on this jet ski, and he was kind of on the big boat watching me. And so I said, hey, Ben, come jump on the jet ski with me. And Ben climbs on, and now he's sitting in front of me on the jet ski. And this is a total pride comes before the fall moment. So here it comes. And so so because I'm trying to impress Ben a little bit, I'm thinking, oh, I'll let him take the jet ski by himself. So I'm showing him how to work it and how to drive it. And I'm like, all right, buddy, now you're going to take it on your own. I'm letting you go by yourself, right? But instead of just stopping the jet ski and jumping off, I thought, oh, I'll be really cool. And I'll just like, we'll be cruising along and I'll just jump off the back. Um, and as I did, I kind of leap off and we're going pretty quick. And my leg comes down into the water. And of course, as it hits the water, it just gets yanked back. And I hear this pop, this loud pop, like snap in my knee, in instant pain. And as I lay there in the water, kind of like thrashing around, holding my knee in utter agony, I knew instantly the dream that was my senior season of college basketball had just ended. And it was a dark, dark time. And as I waited for the next three days for the results from the doctor, um, there was a dream that was dying. Luckily, the word came back that my knee would heal in time, and I did get to play my senior year, but that was just a horribly depressing time of life. And some of you are sitting here this morning, and you're thinking, well, if you think that dream was hard, if you think that was tough, 
I got a story for you. And I know a lot of you do. And maybe not just one. Maybe it's a marriage that walking down the aisle, you had such dreams for, such plans, such hopes. Or maybe your dream was to be married, but it never happened. Or maybe your dream was about the kind of family you were going to be. And somewhere along the line, it just went south. It just took a wrong turn. Or maybe how you'd spend retirement with your spouse and you had all these plans and hopes and then something came and just snatched that dream away. Or maybe your Babylon has to do with your job. You were going to make such a difference. You were going to be so significant. You were going to have such a real impact in this world. It just never quite happened. Or maybe it's just your life. Maybe when you look in the mirror, your life simply isn't anything you ever thought it would be. And you find yourself in Babylon, cut off from the life you wanted and the dreams you had. And you wonder, will I ever get home? Will this new place, will this new path ever feel like home? And worst of all, maybe the worst part about this place you find yourself in is you wonder if God even knows. Does he even care? How could he let this happen? Has he forgotten his promise? Does he even notice? You see, Babylon is where you find yourself when life does not turn out the way you planned. Babylon is the death of a dream. The second thing that defines Babylon in this story is that it's something that tries to move us away from God. You see, the Babylonian Empire used a very specific strategy when they took over or conquered a nation. Because it was one thing to defeat defeat a group of people. It was one thing to come in with your army and beat their army, to knock down their city walls and say, we're in control now. That was one thing. That was actually fairly simple for the Babylonians. They had an enormous army. They were extremely powerful. But it was another thing to actually have to control those people to contain them, to rule them, to win their allegiance to you. That was the harder part. So the Babylonians came up with a very specific strategy. They were masters of this. They would choose the best and the brightest, the born leaders from the conquered nation, and they would take those leaders and they would train them to assimilate them into their culture so that they could assimilate their own people. Their strategy was, if we can win the leaders of a nation, we can win the whole nation. If we can bring them into the Babylonian culture and indoctrinate them into our ways and our way of thinking, then everyone else will follow. Listen to these words. This is the the next four verses from chapter one. This is after Jerusalem has been besieged. And Babylon has overcome and overtaken Judah and Israel. It says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. How many ladies right now feel like you just described your husband? It's awkward. Don't say. Okay. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. 
Among those, were, among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. You see, what this passage tells us essentially is that Daniel and his crew have now become a part of the Babylonian assimilation project. How many Star Trek fans in here? Hold your hands real high so we can judge you. Um, <laughs> Actually, private confession, I'm, I'm a Trekkie as well. And if you're really a Trekkie, then you have to kind of go another layer, and that is, what generation of Star Trek do you love? Are you like original, next generation, Voyager, Enterprise? The rest of you are like, wow, what is happening here? This is definitely an Intel church. Okay. No, uh, I'm a Star Trek, the next generation guy. The best season, undoubtedly. Right? With Jean-Luc. At any rate, and in that, in that state, yeah, that's right. Give a shout out. You don't, you don't shout out for Jesus, but you'll shout out for Star Trek. I love that. Um, so in, in Star Trek The Next Generation, there's this enemy. This enemy that's always sort of looming in the background. And they're called the Borg. And they fly in this giant cube ship. And when they come along, their main goal is to assimilate you into their culture. They want to suck you out of your culture, and they want you to become a part of the Borgian culture. And so there's this whole assimilation thing where they take over your mind and such. That's what's happening here. The Babylonians are trying to assimilate uh, the nation of Israel, and they're doing that through Daniel and his buddies. They want to suck the Hebrew culture out of them, and they want to infiltrate the Babylonian culture into them. And you'll notice the one thing they do right away, almost instantly, is change their names. Now, this may not seem like a big deal to us, but it was a very big deal in the ancient world because your name said a whole lot about who you were. You should know that each of their old names, their Hebrew names, each of those names contained a reference to their God, to the God of Israel, to Yahweh. You see that little syllable, Yah, Hananiah, Azariah? It's from Yahweh, the Hebrew name for God. And then there's a little syllable El, Daniel, Mishael. It's from Elohim, another Hebrew name for God. In other words, their very names reminded them that they belonged to God. Every time their names were said, it was just a reminder of who their ultimate allegiance was to. And what the Babylonians want is for the Hebrews to forget about their God. In fact, their new names actually contained the titles of Babylonian deities. In other words, forget your God. Forget your old allegiances. Devote yourselves to us now. That's the message. That's the pressure. That is how and why these guys are being trained. And friends, I'll just say this as sort of a side note. I wish I had way more time. And we'll maybe come back to this another time. But I'll, I'll mention this to you. And you'll know it to be true if you think about it for just a moment. The best way to kill devotion is to devote yourself to something new. The best way to kill devotion is to devote yourself to something new. Now think for a moment how God can use that truth in such powerful ways in the lives of people. And think about how the Babylonians in this moment are using that in a destructive way to root out the devotion of these men to their God. The best way to kill devotion is to devote yourself to something new. 
Friends, let me ask you a question today. Let's make this personal. Where are you living in Babylon? Where are you experiencing being pulled away from devotion to God? What place, what person, what activity, what lifestyle, what mindset is trying to move you away from devotion to the Lord? What in this world is competing with God for your devotion? You see, it doesn't have to be an evil thing. It doesn't have to be a big, dark, purple blob on a map. Anything that wants you to devote yourself to it instead of God that wants to pull you away from your allegiance to him, that is Babylon in your life. It's this force that's trying to shift your allegiances and move you away from the life that you were created to live. The life of hope and joy and blessing and fullness and peace and purpose. So the big question becomes, how does Daniel survive? How do do Daniel and his buddies survive in Babylon? And how do we survive when Babylon comes our way in its various forms in our world? Well, we read that Daniel and his friends get shipped off from Judah to Babylon. And then when they arrive, they're given new names. And then they're given food to eat by the king. Now, this may seem like a minor deal, but it wasn't for them. Because in the Jewish world, food was a very big deal. It wasn't simply about having enough to eat or liking something or preferring Burgerville over Burger King. No, for the Jewish people, what you ate and what you wouldn't eat was one of the central ways you remembered and displayed your faith and devotion, your commitment to God. Just there every day with every meal as you ate, you would be declaring again to yourself and to the world, God is my ultimate devotion with my name and with my food. All the time I was being reminded who was number one in my life. Food was not about filling your belly, it was about your allegiance to Yahweh. And so now Daniel and his boys, they have a choice to make. They're offered food, and they can just choose to go along with the culture. They can just go along with the crowd. They can fit in and simply do what everyone else is doing in Babylon, or they can choose to take a stand. And here's what it says in verse 5. It says, The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. Don't be... Don't be devoted to Yahweh. Don't be devoted to your God. Come be devoted to me. Don't eat his food. Come eat our food. But Daniel, verse 8, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. He resolved. That word resolved is such a powerful word. It's actually two words in, the, in Hebrew, which is the language this passage was written in. And it means this. It means he purposed in his heart. He determined. He decided with all of his mind and heart and emotions and passions and courage. With all the strength he could possibly muster from within, he would follow God no matter what. He resolved that he would not compromise. Do you have that kind of resolve? Do you have that kind of determination in your life? Do you have that kind of courage and confidence and commitment in the midst of whatever Babylon you're facing, big or small? Another way 
to ask it, or maybe a more important question is, where in your life is there some resolve needed? And not just this morning, not just in the comforts of a church pew with all your friends around you. The resolve we read about in Daniel is not a one-time thing. And so the question really becomes, where in your life do you need to over and over and over and over and over again resolve to follow God? Purpose in your mind and heart and life and will that he will be number one. Because that's the story of Daniel. It's the story of a young man who has to continually resolve time and time again to be faithful and loyal and committed. Even when everything and everyone around him is pushing him to give up his dreams and compromise his faith. See, when we think about Daniel, we all think about the same thing. The one big moment that we learned about in Sunday school if we went as a kid. Daniel and the... Lion's Den. That's what he's famous for, this big moment where he stands strong for God. He's threatened, if you don't do this, if you don't capitulate, if you don't take on the Babylonian way, Daniel, then we're throwing you in this den of lions. And now Daniel has a decision to make. It's this crowning sort of moment of victory and triumph and faithfulness for him. And yet, friends, and yet what we often miss in Daniel's story is that that was not the only moment. In fact, it wasn't the first moment. It was a moment that followed so many others. See, the giant moment of the lion's den was undergirded with tons of tiny little smaller moments of devotion and commitment and resolve. Friends, hear this, because this is important today. Because some of you aren't facing huge, giant Babylons in your life right now, but I promise you, every single person in this room has at least a small one has at least some place of temptation or distraction or competition for love and faith and devotion to God in your life. That is every single person in this room. And so hear this, little compromises lead to big compromises. Little compromises lead to big compromises. Little moments of resolve and determination and faithfulness lead to big moments of resolve and determination and faithfulness. You see, today, maybe this isn't about some huge thing in your life. Maybe it is. But even if it's not, maybe God just wants you to make a little step of faithfulness, a little decision towards alliance and allegiance to him. God wants so badly for you to develop a habit and pattern of faithfulness in your life because that is the book of Daniel. It is a book filled with these moments over and over and over again. Six moments consecutively in Daniel. Just kind of a cyclical book. A moment, another moment, another moment. Six stories, six times where Daniel and his friends face pressure, extreme pressure that tests their resolve to follow God. And in one of those stories... It becomes real dire if Daniel and his friends do not come through for the king, if they do not deliver, if they do not capitulate, they are going to be destroyed. And so Daniel's resolve is being tested once again, and there's all this pressure, and Daniel has to determine what will he do. And listen, listen what he says. This is Daniel chapter 2. It says, Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. By the way, we notice here that Daniel does not go through these things alone. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven, 
concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven. You see, as much resolve as Daniel had, he knew that without the power and strength and mercy and grace of God, he would not make it. Daniel knew he could not do this on his own, not in Babylon. Ever been in that place? That place where the pressure is just too much? That place where you suddenly realize that you are in over your head, that things have gotten out of control, that place where your own inner resolve doesn't cut it. So Daniel pleads because that's where he is. He pleads, God, I need you. God, if we're gonna make it out of here in Babylon, we can't do it alone. Friends, Daniel understood that without the power of God, without a connection to his grace, he was in big trouble. And the same is true for me and you. We cannot make it on our own. We need people and we need the strength and mercy of the living God. We must plead for that mercy the same way Daniel did. There was a guy named Jim who was doing some hiking in the mountains. And at one point, he stumbled and fell off the edge of this enormous cliff. And luckily, as he was falling, he reached out and he grabbed the hold of a tree root that was sticking out of the side of the mountain. And so now Jim is just hanging, hanging by this root, looking down at hundreds of feet below him that he will certainly fall to his death. And so he starts calling out as he's hanging there. Is anybody up there? Someone? Anyone? Save me! And all of a sudden, much to Jim's surprise, a voice comes back. Jim, it's me, God. I'm here to save you. And so Jim is so relieved and he yells back, Great! Throw down a rope. I can't hold on much longer. To which God responds, Jim, I don't need a rope. I'm God. Just let go and I'll catch you. So Jim's a little freaked out. He looks around, takes one more look down, thinks about it for a second, and then he screams out again, Is there anybody else up there? <laughs> this is not a true story, by the way, if I didn't have to tell you. But the point is significant. Sometimes you can't hold on by yourself. Sometimes Babylon is just too big. Sometimes your resolve will not be enough. Sometimes you have to let go. But for some of us, letting go is actually harder than resolving to do it on our own. I will say that again. For most of us, letting go is actually harder than resolving to do it on our own. Remember earlier when I said there were three things that defined Babylon and then we only covered two? All you note takers out there, I've been stressed for a while. Like, I missed the third point. I have to fill it in. If it's not there, it's going to bug me the rest of the day, you know? Um, I saved point three for the last one. Here it is. Babylon is a place God uses to teach us to depend on him. You see, sometimes I think we have this idea... 
when we face struggle and challenge and difficulty and tragedy in our lives, that we must have ended up here on accident, that someone missed something, that God's tension was diverted in heaven, that some things got all wonky, and now we're outside of his will or his plan, and that God has somehow lost control or maybe even forgotten about us. But friends, what we find out from the book of Daniel is that is not the case, and it never is. Right at the beginning of this story, I'll take us back again, we read something that maybe, that maybe you missed, maybe you didn't. It's in verse 2, but I'll start again at the top. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Tragedy, destruction, terror, the death of a dream, all that stuff. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. You see, the writer of this story is convinced right from the beginning that God was not asleep, that God had not broken his promise or forgotten his dream, that God was at work right from the start, and he is up to something in and through Babylon. Do you know that today? Do you feel that today? Are you still clinging to that this morning? Do you know that right in the middle of whatever Babylon you are facing, God is working, that he is moving and shaping, that he has not forgotten about you? That his plans and purposes are so much bigger than you can ever even understand or imagine. And I'm not saying that it all makes sense. I'm not saying that it will be easy. I'm not saying to slap a scripture verse or a smile on your face and pretend that everything is great and that you're just happy. Not the message. But you know, one thing you will never find in the book of Daniel is God explaining himself. There's never a passage, there's never a chapter or a moment in this entire book in the midst of all the trials and struggles and difficulties where God comes down or sends an angel and sits Daniel down with all of his buddies and says, guys, I've got this whole thing under control. Here's the plan. Here are all the reasons. And here's how it's going to work itself out in a nice, neat little bow in the end. Be worry and stress-free. That never happens. Daniel never gets the blueprint. But Daniel has this promise. My God is with me. My God is at work. My God is in control, even when I don't understand it. And there is nothing too big or hard or awful or tragic for him. You see, the third thing that defines Babylon is actually the number one thing that helps us face it and get through it. And that is knowing this truth. God is always at work. He will use everything in this world, even the most confusing, awful, tragic things, for his glory and our good. And I do not say that in a trite way, but I say it with confidence that Daniel had. The confidence that says, this thing is big, this thing is scary, and I don't understand it, but my God is with me. And so friends, I invite you this morning to grab a hold again to that truth. To grab a hold with resolve, not resolve that you muster up on your own, but resolve that you find in our Lord. To grab a hold of that truth, to face whatever Babylon, big or small, that you're facing in this world. And to remember that God is still at work, that he is up to something, and his will and ways will prevail in the end. 
We know the end of the story, and God wins every single time. He cannot be defeated. He has won the ultimate victory. And we remember that every single Sunday at this very table, in a real tangible way, through some bread. So come to the table this morning, friends, and grab that bread, that bread that reminds you, even when it comes to our human fleshly bodies withering and wasting away, God has power, even the power over death. Because Jesus Christ has won the battle of the grave. And then take that little cup, that little plastic cup with just a splash of juice in it, and remember what it is. Remember what it stands for. It stands for the blood of Jesus. It's a little shot of liquid courage, liquid faith, liquid trust, liquid resolve to face whatever you need to face in this world because even the worst stuff out there has been covered by the love and grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you again today to not just have a religious moment, but to come and meet again with the living God of heaven at this table, through this bread and this juice, to sit in your pew once again and think about the Babylons in your life, big or small, the ones that stare you down and make you nervous and get you all scared and say, God, again, I choose to trust you. I choose to trust and know that you are bigger and stronger and greater than any Babylon that comes my way. So take a few minutes, think about what stands before you in your life, and then when you're ready, come, grab the bread, grab the cup, back to your seat, and we'll take it together on our own, right? Together on our own. So as you take it on your own, remember that we take it together because we are the community of people founded on this truth. Our God has won the victory over the evil, destructive, broken Babylons of this world. He has even won the victory over the grave. And we will declare that together again today. And then if you need prayer this morning, if you need just someone to just say that Babylon is overwhelming you, but I'll pray for you. I'll lift you up. I'll pray for that resolve that you don't even know if you can pray for these days. You just see someone, there's gonna be folks over here and over here and in the back. Do not miss the chance to let some other people into your world and let them pray for you. So the table will be open. Our prayer stations will be open. Whenever you're ready, you come and bring whatever it is you have before God. He is bigger than it all. Amen? Father, this morning, thank you for who you are. Personally, Lord, I thank you for being bigger than death, than heartache, than trouble, than feelings, than fear, than disappointment, than failure, bigger than guilt and shame, Lord. You're bigger than all of it. We love you and trust you and thank you and love you. We rely on the fact that you loved us. Thank you, Jesus, for being our God and King. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.